Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source. My co-host is Nicole Vulcan, our editor. We are powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. And we are also powered this week by Rockin' Dave's Bistro and Backstage Lounge, Midtown's hotspot for bagels, breakfast, sandwiches, soup, salads, and catering. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. This is our calm in the eye of the hurricane of publishing. So thanks for sharing this time with us. Today we're talking to Cassie McQueen. Cassie is the executive director of Saving Grace, which offers safety, hope, and healing to survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual assault and engages Central Oregon to build life free from violence. A native Texan, Casey grew up working with at-risk youth in some of the most impoverished areas of North Texas. Inspired by the resiliency she witnessed in underserved communities, Cassie developed a deep passion for public service and a commitment to social change. Cassie's career has included leadership positions in nonprofit organizations across the country, including Director of Outreach and Education at Chamberlain Performing Arts, Director of Development of Boys and Girls Clubs of Portland, and Chief Operating Officer of the Cascades and Alaska Regions of the American Red Cross. Cassie has been at Saving Grace since 2019 and advocating for survivors and women's rights. Cassie is also an avid hiker, backpacker, yogi, and enjoys spending time outdoors with her family. Cassie, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, you two. Cassie is one of my favorite people locally, so this is a great opportunity for us. Thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, right back at you. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So, Cassie, share with us a little about the background experiences that led you to pursue work in nonprofits. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, You know, I think I had this point in my life and I have to like give my brother who is 14 years older than me some credit, but really had this place of I could either make money or I could make a difference. And I would like that the world was not that way. But let's all be real, like in the society that we (laughs) live in, it's kind of true. And I just at a young age really made a commitment to make a difference. I uh, like you kind of saw in my bio that you read, Erin, that I started a nonprofit work really young with kids who had nothing. And I was supposed to teach them dance education. And quickly, I learned that like I was showing up for so much more. In North Texas. In North Texas. Dance education. Dance education to oftentimes like teenage boys that were like court ordered to attend the Boys and Girls Club for truancy issues. And I was tasked with trying to teach them ballet. (laughs) And I quickly learned that there was so much that the world needed. There's like truly... unfortunately, suffering and violence and these pieces everywhere that um, really had a commitment that rather than using my voice and my skills to make myself money, I am so much more fulfilled by making folks have a better life. And so it's kind of been a long life commitment to me. Um, And then I started working at the Red Cross where it was this 24-hour crisis intervention flying across the country, you know, doing stuff for Hurricane Sandy and the wildfires in California. And that was awesome. Excuse me, but I wanted to see how I could take those 24-hour skills and apply it to something that meant a lot to me. And quite honestly, that was women. That was women. Um, And that's what brought me down to Saving Grace was how could I help impact folks who are being affected by violence 24 hours? And I love it. 
Yeah. There's, I mean, you mentioned some of your other experiences. I imagine some of the kind of nuts and bolts of running a nonprofit are the same. So what are some of the unifying themes that go into nonprofit work? Oh, that's a great question. So to me, like really the work comes from how you treat the people. And that was something that took me a long time of learning, you know, because in nonprofit work, there's never enough money. There's never enough resources. We're working in this scarcity mentality with a mission that you're probably never going to fulfill, period. Like, let's just talk about that, like an unattainable goal. And so what really quickly led to me was that it's all about how you treat and engage your people. And that is what engages change, right? And so that was kind of what stepped me out of like doing field work in nonprofits to how can I help more people do the work so we can impact others. And for me, it actually started with that Boys and Girls Club Director of Education and Outreach, where I quickly learned like, treat everybody with respect. You know, I would come into these places, you know, Title IX, rough areas, rough schools, and call my kids sir and ma'am. And they're like, what? And would turn around (laughs) and show that respect and support right back. You know, and so a big piece about nonprofit work to me is how you can support and steward the people that are willing to show up, Mm -hmm. you know, and how you can get to have this kind of long-term projective look, right? Because it's not just the problem today, it's the problem tomorrow. And what it will be 10 years from now and 20 years from now. And I'm so grateful for the Red Cross because that really gave me that big picture experience. How can we plan? How can we engage people to figure out what the problem is next? And then ultimately what led me to Saving Grace and what I love here is taking all of that without the big bureaucracy. I love the Red Cross, but it's a big organization and we can make decisions in lifetime that impact our staff, that impact survivors to actually make change. And so for me, yeah, it's really the nuts and bolts of how you treat your people, how you look at what you're trying to deal with to make that mission go and be better. Cassie, maybe you can't speak to this, but, um, you know, starting out so young in an area that's so challenging and um, like you mentioned in, in Texas, what, what, you know, a lot of people would have been you know, beat down by the experience or, you know, they're coming into nonprofit work and they're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is such a lot of work that, and it requires so much emotionally. And how, what, what do you think it was about you? And what do you, what do you, what can you say to other people who are entering these kind of fields to be like, hey, that first, that first hit, you know, mm-hmm. how you get through that, how you embrace it? Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of nailed it. It's hard work. It is not pretty working in trauma, working with folks that don't have what they need, seeing that level of crisis. For me at that young age, it was really a place where I got to process my own trauma. And I think you see that a lot in the nonprofit fields that folks typically have a connection to the work. So I grew up in a household that was full of domestic violence. I didn't have the language for it at that time. Um, You know, and so getting to work with kids, it almost made me say, like, yes, my situation was terrible, but it helped me figure out how I could help others and how there were others that also had it a lot worse off for me at that point. And that was a big reckoning. You know, my, my 
early 20s, that kind of piece. Um, And then as I've continued on, it's kind of been, I think, a long-term place of healing. You know, one thing that I don't shy away from, and Erin knows this, is, I mean, most people, most women, Nicole, have some history of domestic violence, Mm -hmm. of sexual assault. I didn't really have my own connection that I had been sexually assaulted until I started working at Saving Grace. I had never really made that connection. I had never realized it. It wasn't this kind of, you know, talk. Um, And so it's been this long journey of how I can help other people heal to do my own healing. Um, I think how I get that like gusto, how I'm able to keep on doing it is it's this balance of then how can I create a really beautiful life for myself? And that's one thing that we talk about at Saving Grace a ton. How can this work be sustainable? What do you need as a person to continue to get better? back in the trenches, you know, and for me, that's why I'm in Bend. It's because I can go hiking every weekend. It's because I do yoga every morning. It almost forces me to create this beautiful life that sustains me because I'm doing this hard trauma work. But what I would say to folks who are getting in there is you got to take care of yourselves, do the work, drive the change. But at the end of the day, if you're not caring and feeding and nurturing yourself, you don't get to show up for anyone else. So take that time. It's it's important and it will sustain you as here I am decades later still doing <laughs> trauma based, you know, nonprofit right. work. It's amazing. Yeah. So I, I guess that was one of my questions is just like you ha- it sounds like those are the kind of conversations you have with your staff. Um, you know, what else is in that conversation besides, hey, go take care of yourself? So for us, it's not just talking about it. And, you know, I think we saw that over COVID, right? There was this big implication from employers to say, like, it's important that you take your sick time. You're a human, too. But for us, it's how do we have, like, the policy and the infrastructure to support that? So it's not just go get a massage or take a bubble bath tonight, because let's be real, that's not going to face the trauma or fix the trauma that our folks are facing every day. So for us at Saving Grace, we have a 35-hour work week radical compared to some folks because we're like, you cannot do trauma work for 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm. It is not sustainable. So, you know, that is like one piece of our policy to try to make folks take care of ourselves. We also have any time that folks are working overnights, that they are compensated at the absolute level like it was a daytime, that they're flexing their hours, that we're never asking them to work more than that. You Mm -hmm. know, we're giving um, we just had a training, was it yesterday? Yesterday, actually, around vicarious trauma that we Mm -hmm. brought every together to talk about because it's not if or when it's like yes it is happening yesterday and today and tomorrow and so for us it's it's not just philosophical it's seen in our policies it's seen in how we work because honestly that's the only way we can be sustainable um, is to make sure that we take care of ourselves and take care of our people yeah I mean I guess the alternative is you lose people you know they experience you know difficulties in their lives you know they're maybe not able to work there anymore you've got to do the cycle of of training I'm sure it's a you know a significant training process oh wow for absolutely folks. Well, and like most employers in Central Oregon, probably in the country, but let's just talk here. I mean, retention is the name of the game as it's been so hard to find, you know, to keep our workforce at the capacity that we need it to be. And especially, unfortunately, in intimate partner violence and sexual assault, where we're seeing the numbers either go up or we're seeing that when folks do need our services, they need not just one service. They need five. They need 10, you know. And so for us, it's been, yeah, how do we keep 
folks so we can stay around? How can we make sure to preserve that? And you're totally right with that training piece. I mean, everyone who works at Saving Grace is a confidential advocate. So that means they've gone through training that like protects them under like state law. So mm. they can't be subpoenaed. They can't testify against a survivor. And so it is. It's really, really rigorous. And the fact of the matter is we can't fulfill our mission if we don't have our people. And that's something we're constantly talking about, like taking care of ourselves is equally the work as sitting down and having a meeting with survivors. Because if you can take one hour to nurture yourself, then you might have 10 different clients or, you know, it it just multiplies in what you can do. But yeah, you're totally right. Retention is the name (laughs) of the game. Yeah. So, I mean, in the interest of safety, I know a lot of the work that you do to help survivors kind of takes place on the background. Um, You know, some of the things you don't want everybody to know about. But I was just curious if there are things that, you know, maybe you would like the public to know about what kind of, you know, specific work you're doing with um, people who come to you. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the hardest things for us is folks don't want to talk about sexual assault and domestic violence, right? You Either it's just not fun to talk about or like, surely not my family, surely not my kids. You know, this could never happen to me. And so it's, it's hard for us to get the word out on what we're doing. The fact of the matter is Saving Grace has been doing this work in this community for over 40 years, um, which actually makes us one of the, the DV leaders in the entire country. We were actually one of the first nine domestic violence shelters in the entire country. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, when I'm talking about expertise, when I'm talking about, you know, advocates, when we've got staff who have been helping with policy and curriculum and practices for survivors, we've been doing that for a long time. What it looks like in Central Oregon now, though, is that we're providing services 24 hours a day. 365 days a year. Oftentimes people know we've got our helpline. You can call for help. But what folks don't always know is that we've got an emergency shelter. We have survivor housing funds for folks who have had trauma. We do court-ordered visitation and exchange over at Mary's Place, which folks don't talk about a lot, but that's for folks that are court-ordered to have support when they're exchanging based on violence that has happened in the family in the past. Um, We've got free counseling services for survivors. Court advocacy, we've got eight offices actually in the Tri-County area. And so really what I want folks to know that if you think, if you just have an idea that maybe intimate partner violence or sexual assault has impacted you or has impacted somebody that you know, that Saving Grace probably either has the resource or has the connection to get folks help. And that what we would rather do is folks reach out to that 24-hour helpline because that's where we can first triage with folks. We can say, we believe you. And let me tell you, that's some of the most powerful piece of this work. We believe you. And how can I help you next? Um, But yeah, those services are constant and really the only ones in this community. We're one of the only markets that only has one domestic violence organization for the entire market. So maybe elaborate a little bit on Mary's Place. It's such a incredible program. It really is. And it's actually one of the few um, in the country, one of the only ones in the Pacific Northwest that are doing these services. So we call it our Safe Visitation and Exchange Center. And it is um, in here in Deschutes County. It's actually based at the Deschutes County Courthouse. And it's been approved Mm -hmm. by the Office of Violence Against Women. And why that's really important is because that gives us federal funding to do this work. And why that is important is because we're working with 
survivors of the harm and the folks that caused harm at the same time. Um, That's really intricate because most of these people have a restraining order. So we have to be able to keep certain distances, have separate rooms, have check-ins both with the person who caused harm and with the the survivor who's checking in. And then we've got the kids in between. So what it essentially looks like is we either have court-ordered visitation, which we have our trained facilitators who are helping the parent that caused harm interact and re-engage with their kids in a safe way. But they're there always listening, always watching for signs, always Mm. making sure that everybody's safe. Um, And then we have exchange that happens. So oftentimes you'll see this in other states. It's happening on a blue line at a police department or sometimes at the sheriff's office. And there's a history of that Mm -hmm. escalating and being violent pretty quickly. So we have a protocol when that exchange is happening. Parents never see each other. They're able to maintain that restraining order distance. And our staff are able to get kiddos check in with each one of the parents, check in with the kids. That's a big part of our model. Do the kids feel safe? Do the kids want to go? Um, And kind of make that conduit because what we know in violence and the domestic violence and intimate partner violence world is that it's the worst at the post-separation time. Actually, it's worse after the fact. And that's when we see, I mean, unfortunately, fatalities and things like that. But yeah, it is one of the only centers in the Pacific Northwest that is doing that where it's court ordered through. And we provide those services no matter how hard and gnarly it can be how how um how do i put this at those centers i mean what does it go pretty smoothly i mean i can see something like mary's place being um you know there could be some conflict It's, let me tell you, out of every role that we have in Saving Grace, when I came here, it was important for me to like sit in everybody's seat, yeah. to learn everybody's role. Because I had done crisis work, but not intimate partner violence and sexual assault work. Um, our team, you, judge me, don't judge me. I could not do what they do at Mary's Place yeah. because, A, it's a very high degree of safety. And that's what makes it go yeah, smooth that's what is everybody has a safety protocol at all times. There's always a check-in. There's many security cameras, constant walkie-talkies. They do active shooter checks. I mean, it is a rigorous process just before they ever open that door. Right. And then when it goes on, one thing that's really important, it kind of goes back to that first place, is we treat everybody with mutual respect, right? Even if it's somebody who caused harm and does not want to be there. Let me tell you, most people at Mary's place do not want to be there, Mm -hmm. Um, right? It was court ordered. But if I'm going to see my kids, I have to go there. Or I don't actually want this person that caused this harm to see see my kids or see me, but I have to. And so they don't want to be there. So we have to hold space to um, check in with those folks to get to know those folks, because that's how we're able to see if somebody escalates, if something is not a good situation. Yeah. What could this be? In um, the whole time that Mary's Place has been open, we have never had a violent event occur there. And that's really a tribute to our staff yeah. and the protocols that they serve. But it is hard because let me tell you, when somebody gets really, their lid gets flipped, right? right. They're there, they're mad. And then we have to de-escalate in the moment with kids present, with survivor present, with, you know, abuser yeah. present. Um, and so, it's challenging work, but luckily I, it goes pretty smooth. I got to think that you're you're playing a lot of telephone tag, too, because if one's coming in and one's coming out, they're trying to send messages, they're trying to emotionally charge the other side of the event through the kid. I mean, mm-hmm. 
for the people working there, that's got to be an incredible strain. Like, what do you say? What do you pass on? What's your boundary? Totally. Yeah. Well, and even you even speak to kind of how we capture our statistics over at Mary's Place, because everybody is like, how many families, how many visits? And that's obviously good. But we also typically have 40 to 50 families in waiting to wow. get in with us. And mm. everybody requires they have to do an orientation. We have to do interviews with them. And like you said, that phone tag. So mom might be ready to do that and we're waiting to hear from dad and these processes mm. attorneys are involved mm-hmm. kids counselors are involved so we actually track the number of calls that we do the number of follow-ups because that really paints the whole picture right. because in order to get people there and to have it be safe there's a whole lot of work that goes on before then and then yeah they are constantly training because you have to be able to recognize some very deliberate signs of domestic violence you know in lifetime the people who are there are there because they've been convict you know they've they're right. they're meant to be there right. um and we've had people try to do funky stuff when right. they're visiting kids whether it's passing a message saying stuff in code you know like we really have to look out for that and the nice thing is we teach our team both at mary's place but all over we also have boundaries with our clients right if you break the rules we're done here for today and right. we call that you know if you speak to me in a place of of rudeness and violence we're done here. We don't right. act like that, you know? And so it's really getting those boundaries and almost walking the walk as much as we talk it, you know, because yeah. we have to show up that way to be safe. And we're kind of modeling to yeah. these folks of what is a healthy way of yeah. interacting with each other. Yeah. You you mentioned there's the waiting list there. That made me kind of wonder about the emergency shelter mm. services. Can someone get in day of if they're experiencing a crisis or what does that look like? Yeah, that's a complicated question, honestly. And and it's complicated for a couple of reasons. Is one, our, so we have one shelter here in Central Oregon, one that we are hoping to grow here in the future, mm-hmm. um, because Central Oregon has grown by quite a bit, and we know that this is a, a is a issue here. But typically, it depends on the survivor's needs. Mm -hmm. It depends on their safety. And it depends oftentimes on what we do as a lethality assessment, too. Mm -hmm. So if somebody calls day of and they need a safe place to stay, they will have a safe place to stay with us. If they will be in our shelter or not is a maybe. But we will get them safe for that day. We will make sure they are not going back to abuser and we will connect them. And then what we have to do is screen long term. Can you live in community living? Is your abuser looking and hunting for you at a way that is going to compromise the safety of other folks? Are we needing to try to get you out of the area? Um, But the reality is, if you call our helpline today and you needed help, you would have a place to go. Wow, that's really great to hear. Um, Wanted to switch gears and just talk a little bit about, you know, we've gotten to know you over the years through the Source Weekly Central Oregon Gives program. And Saving Grace has been quite successful in that program and fundraising, to, to say the least. What does taking part in something like Central Oregon Gives look like from your end? Oh, wow. Well, honestly, from our end, it's a blessing because the fact of the matter is every nonprofit is doing fundraising towards the end of the year, right? We're all doing it. We've all got a message, but typically we're talking to our own donors, folks that already know our mission, folks that have probably given to us. And so what it's done is just given us a platform to elevate our voice without actually having to do any more work. And let's be clear, like in a nonprofit, like adding more to the plate is typically not okay, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> like our plates are oh, full. Come on. We're pushing the stuff around. And so it's just been this beautiful opportunity to take our mission, to take our message, to take our ask, which I mean, I'm biased, but it's powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. just say, hey, let us plug it into your system. No extra work <clears throat> and get it out there for other folks to understand or learn. And we've even have people like, I just donated because I wanted this $5, you know, beer here. I wanted to go to Dave's like this day. And I'm that's great. Yeah. If that's what got you to us and now we can tell you about what we do, that's fantastic. But just at the time of the year where like all cylinders are firing, it elevates us. And it's just, it's been a gift to you all. So like, I love it. I love it. Well, I, you know, given what you've got going on and all the rest of the work you're doing, the, what, what always impresses me about um, your organization is how much energy and <clears throat> velocity you can put behind those marketing efforts and the tools that we provide and what you actually do with them. You get creative. There's stuff outside the box. So um, while, you know, Central Oregon gives does a certain amount, it certainly takes the energy of the nonprofit on the other end to really amplify it and Uh, that's where you guys thrive for sure. Well, thank you. And, you know, I have to give kudos to our team. You know, at Saving Grace, we have like a collaborative model. You Mm -hmm. know, now not every decision is collaborative. Like, let's be real. But our leadership team, our development team, they're all working together. They're thinking outside the box. They're pushing new ideas, you know. Um, And that's just a beautiful place where we get to work in that way and say, what do we want to do? Let's be radical. Let's try something we've never tried before and go for it. So I'm really fortunate to work with the best team that I've ever worked with in my career at Saving Grace. Well, it's a good segue into the other thing that we're working collaboratively on through our Happy Girls Run and then now Saving Grace's Heroes event that's a part of that. Maybe you could, uh, again, something that was a a germ of an idea that you guys have really catapulted to the next level. Maybe talk a little bit about your work around Heroes. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've been here in Central Oregon for a while, you might have known our Heroes event. We've done it for over a decade. And like most nonprofits, it had started from... if you're a nonprofit person, Benavon will mean something to you. But essentially, it was a fundraising model, you know, where you have a big gala, you have food, you have a story, we all sit down for an hour and you raise money. Um, and the fact of the matter is, in my nonprofit experience, we've really seen the the return of investment on those galas go way down, right? Because huh. like folks don't always want to come and fill a table, like food costs are really high. That's great. It's $50 a ticket, but it's $35 a plate for your food. You know, it's just um, it's been kind of a different model. And so when COVID happened, like most nonprofits, we pivoted from our usual, you know, Mm -hmm. Tethero Heroes event to doing it online like everyone else. And we were like, okay, this works. We made money. But it wasn't fun for us. You know, there wasn't that engagement. There wasn't that like, let's talk about our mission and let's like bring that money home. It just didn't feel the same. Um, And then we came out of COVID. And quite honestly, I think a lot of us, we looked at how we were working. We looked at how we were engaging in the community. And we're like, we don't really want to do that again. I don't really want to coordinate a big expensive gala where like it takes a whole staff member all year long and we only raise this much money. So how can we do something completely different? And we started by being honest with our donors, right? We're like, we don't want to pay for a meal. We don't want to pay for a conference center. We want to pay for survival. So show up, 
and celebrate with us. Celebrate our mission, celebrate our staff, celebrate our volunteers, and most of all, let's celebrate survivors because they are the ones who have like the hardest job in all of this. And so that's where we were able to talk to Happy Girls Run and just have this idea of like, can we make this more of like an outdoor event, a festival, a thing that everybody wants to go to where not only are we raising money, we're raising awareness. Um, And I gotta be honest, our board was like, okay, like really? Like you wanna take this and you're just gonna have this festival and people are gonna sponsor and it's just free for people to come. And we're like, yeah, we wanna try it. I I don't know, it might work, it might fail, but we wanna give it a go. And we did our first one last year with Lay It Out Events and the Happy Girls Run and we exceeded our fundraising goal. Wow. It was fun. It was easy for us as a nonprofit because it didn't require all the staff time. We had this partnership and it was so rewarding for our staff to get to see like this element of the community supporting them. And so we've really just bounced off on the success that we had last year. We're making it bigger and better, but it's going to be part of the Happy Girls Run. It all culminates down at the Riverfront Park with a big celebration for women and the incredible work that Saving Grace is doing. And so to me, it's a great way to talk about the work to engage with people and then let's have some drinks and be by the river and raise money for an amazing nonprofit. I, I don't know how you could do it any better. <laughs> Sounds like a good synergy. Good good job, you guys. <laughs> it's been fun. It's been fun. You know, I have to shamelessly plug. It's on May 20th this year. If you're interested, you can come to Saving Grace, check it out. Um, and it's one where like you don't have to pay money to go. We want you to come and show up and learn. And if it inspires you to say, hey, I want to text to give right now or I want to donate to you, like do it to us it's really how we can talk and celebrate but may 20th i was yeah. <laughs> i was very struck by how um brave your organization was in accepting and pivoting and you know because i remember when we were first talking about the partnership and and um and i and and i was on my side going there there's no entry fee <laughs> they're, they're gonna need 100 percent support for this they're gonna need sponsorship and i mean you know where it went from last year to what it what you the kind of support you've gotten this year yeah. and i mean it's clear that your financial goals are going to be met just by the kind of partnerships and and people i see jumping on board with your organization and it's just incredible to see it's going to be and it's all translating into a lot more fun for people who are coming down and and really need to face a a pretty hard topic and and learn about something in their community and but in a way that's um, it's open and, and the dialogue can happen in that environment. I think. Yeah, no, you get it. You get it. And for us, it was really, how can we look at doing what we need and being transparent about what our needs are? And I have to thank COVID for that. I feel like it gave a lot of nonprofits, you know, we had always been doing fundraising in this way. We had always been interacting with donors in this way and it didn't work anymore, you know? And so rather than coming out of COVID and just going back, we said, this doesn't work and this costs money and we want to spend your money on survivors, not on an event. So just that level of transparency, I feel like Central Oregon got that. They're like, yeah, absolutely. Like do the right thing. Just don't do what you've always done because you think it's right. And they kind of moved with us. So I have to thank this community too for that support and believing in us and saying, no, like we hear you. We don't need to spend this to go sit in a room. Um, And then I think the other big piece for us is it's been a way to connect with folks, right? There are so many women at the Happy Girls Run who may not know about Saving Grace, who may not know about our services, who maybe don't even know (laughs) that they've been sexually assaulted or, you know, 
all of these various pieces. And so it gives us this incredible conduit with the community because at the end of the day, obviously our financial position and raising money is important. What's more important to me is that people are safe. And so it really helps us in getting out there and connecting. And then Central Oregon is just awesome. And they show up for it, which which is the best. I mean, you know, since we're talking about the pandemic, it's probably we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that, in, you know, during this time, the need for your services also increased incredibly. I don't know if you want to touch on, you know, that's an yeah. interesting, you know, talking about the pivot and the fundraising. But at the same time, you, you know, more people are are seeking out your services and and in need than ever before. Well, and I think Central Oregon too, you know, before I was here, I've lived in Portland. You know, I worked with markets in Portland, different agencies in Portland. I'm part of um, the Oregon Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. So I work with executive directors at agencies all across the state. And I think Central Oregon is in a specific tight spot. One, because of all of the growth that we saw over the last three to five years. You could even go back further, but that big boom that we got, you know, and then the fact that we are um, a pretty expensive place to live, you know, compared, yeah, you <laughs> right. know, like cost of living is high here. And then we also don't have a ton of resources that big markets have. We don't have a transitional housing organization here, period. You know, there's not one. You can go to BI, you can go to Saving Grace, you can go here. But after that, we don't have a traditional mm. transitional housing program like other markets. And so there's just a really unique need between the high number of people who live here, how hard it is to get back up on your feet, and the fact that there's not really the wraparound services that you might expect for a community of our size. So COVID COVID um, rocked the way we do all of our business, right? It rocked the way that we do advocacy, that we engage with survivors. But really what we saw is that it just escalated the violence that was happening. You know, we try to go back and look at statistics and like, how many calls did we get? How many did we not? You know, was this the pandemic? Sometimes I swear it's just like the barometer. It's like it rains and our phones are off the hook. But what we most certainly saw were two things is one, when people came to us, it was now they've been completely isolated at home, potentially have had to step away from work because they've got kids at home. They have no safety nets, no money, Mm -hmm. no support. Everybody else is not doing Doing these services. So again, we're like, maybe we just needed to safety plan and help them with a restraining order. Now it was like safety plan, restraining order, housing support, you know, grants, food stability. I mean, the list just went on and on where we were seeing that when advocates were working with survivors, it was taking a lot longer, right? It was taking a lot more to elevate them and get them back up on their feet. Um, The other thing that I I don't want to say I like to talk about, but I think is important to acknowledge from the pandemic is we saw our referrals from the lethality assessment program go up. And Mm -hmm. so what that is, is we have a specific partnership with law enforcement, where it is a screening that law enforcement does in the field. Um, It's actually like a national-based program. It's research-based. It saves lives. But in the past, maybe we would get four, we call it LAP, Lethality Assessment Program, maybe for a month. Now we get four to 10 a weekend. Hmm. Um, And we just saw this higher rate of violence, where it wasn't just... um, Gosh, I, I sometimes I feel callous. <laughs> it wasn't your traditional intimate partner violence. That's not fair to say. But really, we were seeing high lethality. We right. were seeing strangulation. We were seeing like attempted kidnappings. We were seeing just really high violence. And that 
takes a lot more to serve. That takes a lot more to keep people safe. That takes a lot more partnerships across the area. Um, and that is something that I think, again, Central Oregon, we don't like to talk about, right? We're beautiful mm-hmm. bend. We're safe. Yeah, Everything is fine here to say like, no, we saw more DV fatalities where we normally have one a year. We had more than one a year. And we got to talk about that. It's not just the arguments. It's not just, you know, people actually die from this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and that's what we really saw escalate over COVID. Have you have you seen those numbers sustain or kind of are you are you back to a more pre-pandemic no. level? No, we are not. Um, we are not. We are still seeing high numbers. We're still seeing the incredible barriers and more services that survivors are needed. And our lethality assessment program is still um, off the hook, for lack of a better term. It's incredible that we've got this partnership and we know law enforcement is reaching out to us. Um, but it, it's busy. And no, unfortunately, it has not gone back down. And I think it's just a result of both that pressure that happened. Um, I think there are a lot of cultural changes in that time between what our society and our country allowed folks to say, yeah, folks to talk about, that. how we talked about and acknowledge mm-hmm. and accepted violence, you know. And now I think we're still dealing with the aftermath of that. And I think it'll be five, ten years before we see any kind of settling out, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I mean you still have the income inequality, you know, financial <laughs> pressures are not yeah. are not so. getting any easier, certainly, mm-hmm. in, in the community. Yeah. yeah. I got to think some of it you're up against uh, just an increasing population base. 100%. You know, with, with the lack of diversity of services, with the fact that you guys are the lighthouse. Um, I mean, it's growing. And, you know, I mean, with, with, with what that, with that, it's going to obviously come more uh more pressure on you cassie to you know fundraise and and get more facilities built yeah no we're seeing that increase of population change honestly we actually get a lot of calls from folks who um are either working in kind of like the recreation travel industry Mm -hmm. from abuse that they experience from folks in town like that tourism piece also folks are here you know um visiting bend and something happens and they reach out to us um but you know the other pieces that we're seeing too that are so hard is like you asked about if somebody calls how do we keep folks safe you know we have partners all over. So it might not make sense for you to come in our shelter today, but we will keep you safe. Hotel motel costs here in Central Oregon went up like 15% in a year. Talk about a big way to impact our budget. Um, And then the other thing, like we said, retention, saving grace is all about that equitable wage that like just because Mm -hmm. you work at a nonprofit doesn't mean you have to sell your soul and make no money and all of these things. So we actually gave three compensation adjustments to our field team just this past year, three in one year to try to say, how can we address this? How can we keep the motor going? Um, But no, really, you're right, Erin. It comes at us from all angles, whether it's financial, whether it's capacity, whether it's the workforce or just the violence and the trauma that we face. Like how many people start like their Monday morning staff meetings like, let's talk about this rate from yesterday. You know, it's just it's insane. But honestly, I think it's what fuels all of us. Right. Is because the need is always there and there's power in saying there is this need that is always there that we're going to constantly have to figure out how we can meet it. And the reality is we can't do everything, right? And so how do you continue to keep going, especially in a field where the need is never going to stop? And that I'm really proud of our team for kind of figuring that out as to how can we be there for survivors and how we can be transparent and like, this is what we can do. We'll answer the phone again tomorrow. You sleep tonight, you recharge, and then we'll get it done. Um, But it's incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding because of that. Yeah. 
Well, we want to, before we kind of wrap up here, we want to give you a chance to talk about Sexual Assault Awareness Month happening yeah. in April, I believe. It is. What's so, going on with that? Totally. So every April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And I, one thing that's really important to me about Sexual Assault Awareness Month is that we can actually talk about it, right? So one thing that we know, this is all CDC data, half of women, 50% of women experience sexual violence in their life. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so it's most of it's either you or me or both, right? Like as we're sitting in this room together and it's about one in three men. That's, I think, a lot higher mm-hmm. than folks want to talk about. And then it's even hard to talk about the data that goes to our non-binary or LGBTQIA community. You know, we can get into that all day. But the fact of the matter is it is common and it is pervasive. Um, and most people, this happens like before they're 25, right? Mm-hmm. It's like four out of five mm-hmm. women who are raped are actually raped before they're 25. And so, first of all, I know gnarly statistics, but I have to say it because I think we constantly want to be like, it's not me. It's not my friends. Yeah. It's not my kid. No, like it is. And so what we try to do for Sexual Assault Awareness Month is be there in the community to talk about it. We've got three really exciting events, um, and but most of them are in conjunction with COCC. And I just have to thank Central Oregon Community College for supporting us, for giving us space, for helping to elevate this mission with especially college kids when I'm talking about most rapes occur before you're yes. 45. So we've got three events all are on our website, but we've got one on April 12th where we're doing this beautiful writing workshop. Um, her name's Irene Cooper. She's worked with us in the past, but it's just an incredible place for survivors to come together, do this writing workshop, really to do some processing and some growth around this. Um, we've got a really cool book event going on at Dudley's downtown. One of our incredible volunteers, her name's Andrea Wickberg, wrote a story um, about sexual assault existing within high school, specifically yeah. between a student and a teacher. Let's also talk about something that's far more common than what we want to mm-hmm. admit is happening. Um, but we're doing a dual event where we're both talking about her book, about her lived experience, and about the volunteerism and what she does at Saving Grace. So that's a really interesting way uh-huh. to get to hear more, yeah. get to hear this story. And then, of course, we've got Take Back the Night. So Take Back the Night is a national event. It happens on April 27th all over the country. We will be at COCC this year at 6 p.m. And we'll have speakers. We'll kind of yeah, have a great. vigil. We'll have an art project. We'll have a walk. And it is a place to come together to say, we see you. We know this is happening. And we're not going to turn a blind eye. Because the fact of the matter is when we do that's when we perpetuate this culture. So if you want to hear more, if you want to attend some of those events, check out our website. But honestly, to me, let's talk about it. Because the more we don't talk about stuff, the more power it gets. And um, hopefully one day, if I can fulfill my dream, Saving Grace won't have to exist. We'll we'll go out of business, you know. But (laughs) like at first, let's just make sure everybody knows that it happens. And let's make sure that they know how to contact us, which makes me plug one more thing. Yes, go for it. If you feel like you need help or you know somebody who needs help, call us 24 hours a day. That number is 541-389-7021. There will be a trained advocate 24-7 to talk with you, to safety plan with you, to help you. Call. That's what we're here for. Well, Cassie, thank you very much for coming in and talking with us today and uh, helping get your message out. It's Again, the energy you bring to this is uh, pretty amazing, and I I encourage people to reach out to Cassie and uh, take a little bit of that energy from her. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for the work you do, Cassie.